0: You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Father, Son, and Spirit, we do thank you that you are such a kind and generous God who has given everything. We thank you that you've given everything ultimately in your own Son, Jesus Christ, to us. We thank you that you've given us your word that bears witness to Jesus Christ. And we pray now that through your spirit, you would illumine the reading and preaching of your word, that we might be those who are able to respond to it with the whole of our beings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning again, dear sisters and brothers, uh, on this first Sunday of Lent. Lent is that season of the church year spanning from Ash Wednesday through Easter, in which we focus in a special way on the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ for us. And of course, all of this culminates on Easter Sunday when we celebrate his resurrection. But here's the thing. In Lent, we are not just thinking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're also contemplating our own death and resurrection, That in and through Jesus Christ, through our faith in him, through being united to him by baptism, we ourselves participate in this process of death and resurrection. That God is actually inviting us to experience new life. And that's really the invitation of Lent. The invitation of Lent isn't to be morose uh, and to beat up for yourself about your sin. The invitation of Lent is an invitation into renewal, an invitation into resurrection, an invitation into new life. So that's what we're going to be focusing on over the next seven or eight weeks, and we're going to be doing that by doing a deep dive into one single chapter in the Bible. Uh, what many consider to be uh, the greatest chapter um, in the Bible. What many consider to be the greatest chapter ever written, and that is Romans chapter eight. If if the if the Bible were a topographical map, have you all ever seen a topographical map where it's all textured and? valleys and hills and that sort of thing. If the Bible were a topographical map, I think you could say that Romans, the book of Romans is the highest mountain on the map. And if the book of Romans is the highest mountain on the map, then the very peak of the mountain would be Romans chapter 8. And at the very tippy, tippy top of the peak, the vista over which you can see everything else is the very pinnacle of Romans 8 in which Paul says, there is nothing absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God. I I, I really mean this. I I do not think it, it is an exaggeration to say that that truth, that nothing could separate us from God's love, is the most important thing that you could ever believe, is the most important thing that you could ever experience. And that if you know this, if you press this into your soul, that this indeed can change everything everything else. I know at times it feels like that nothing, you know, that nothing can separate you from your problems or that nothing can separate you from your past or that nothing can separate you from your pain. You know, these things often, our problems, our past, our pain, these things feel at times inescapably defining of who we are. And yet this chapter dares to say that the only thing that you can never be separated from is the love of God the unstoppable, irrevocable love of God, and that the more you know this love, the the, the degree to which you are able to live out this truth, that you are not separated from the love of God, is the degree to which you become the person that you were made to be. I believe that, and I hope you do too. So let's start in the beginning. Let's, um, Let's read the first four verses of Romans 8. We'd love for you to bring your Bibles um, this season of Lent just as a way to just dig into this chapter. Um, If you don't have them today, just listen and pull up a little app on your phone or whatever. Um, Or you can just listen as I read Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Four, what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. No condemnation. That is the opening word of this monumental chapter. No condemnation. The chapter ends with the words, no separation. It begins with no condemnation. What does that mean, and why is this good news? Well, let's dig in. First, we have to look at the problem. What is the problem of condemnation? What, What is the condemnation... That Paul says we now have protection from. That's really the first question. And one of the most important principles, if you want to become a student of the Bible, and I hope that many of you do, um, one of the most I think one of the best and simplest principles of studying the Bible is paying attention to the little connecting words. So, kids, every time you see like a little connecting word, especially in Paul, it's very important. pay attention to it. So this verse, chapter 8, verse 1, opens with an important connecting word. What is it? Did you catch what it is? What's the word? Therefore. Therefore. And so when you see a therefore, I know it sounds cliche, but you need to ask, what is the therefore? Therefore, right? Good job. What's the therefore therefore? So when you look and study that, what you realize is that chapter 8 is bridging out of what Paul has previously written, certainly in Romans chapter 7, And actually, he's bridging from what he's been writing in the entire book. Beginning in Romans chapter 1, Paul has been building a conclusive and comprehensive argument about the state of the human race, about the state of humanity. And essentially what he is arguing is this, is that we human beings, you and me, all of us, that we human beings have a terrible problem. And the greatest problem that we could ever face, and here it is, it is the problem that we human beings who were made by God and who were made like God and who were made for God choose to live over and over again without God. That this is the great dilemma of all of humanity. And that because of this, because of this comprehensive human rebellion against God, all of humanity, both Jew and Gentile, all of humanity stands Under condemnation. Condemnation. Paul um, weaves throughout the book of Romans the story of Israel. The story of Israel is very important to him as he is a Jew. And you can see that come up in this text. Did you see how he mentions the law? Did you see how often he mentions the law in these few verses? Hey, are y'all with me? Yeah, yeah, okay, thanks. I just like to know that you're paying attention, okay? So (laughs) nod your heads or something. Uh, So he talks about the law and he's referring to the Torah, the Torah, which is the law, the Jewish law of God that was given to them. And so what he's saying in this is that though the Jewish people had the Torah and they knew exactly what they were supposed to do, and they knew how to obey God, they knew what to do to live in obedience and faithfulness to God, they knew how to love him, they knew how to love their neighbor, that though all of these things were perfectly clear to them, did they do it? No, they did not. Instead, they turned against God and against his law over and over again. It says in verse 2 that despite their best efforts, there always this is there what Paul calls, verse 2, the law of sin and death, leading them away from the good they wanted to do and into sin and death and destruction instead. And what Paul is saying is, this, is that, y'all, this isn't just a problem with the Israelites. This is a human problem. It was like God made the human problem clear through this particular people of Israel. You could put it this way, is that we all know, and I think, I think I could say this honestly, I think that at least if you're an adult and you know yourself well enough, you would say this, is that you're not the person that you're supposed to be. Would you agree with me? Um, you can ask your person you're sitting with if you don't agree with me. <laughs> um, You're not the person that you were made to be, And you're not even the person that you want to be. And that despite our best efforts, as much as we try to do the right thing, there's always something there. There's this, what Paul calls the power of sin and death. There's the power of sin and evil and our captivity to selfishness and sin that always undermines our best efforts to do good. And so at all the time that we want to be the good people we know we're supposed to be, we carry around a sense of our own guilt. Um... I think one of the best modern explanations of this is a book that I had to read it in my philosophy class at college by a Czechoslovakian author named Franz Kafka. Any of y'all ever read Kafka before? He's a real happy guy. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, he wrote a book called The Trial. Anyone ever read The Trial? Um, it's just a couple of you. It's an amazing book. It's about, basically it's about this young guy named Joseph K. And on his 30th birthday, there's a knock on his door, and he's arrested. And he's arrested, and he's put under house arrest. He's put on probation, and he's given a trial date. He has to go to court to be tried. But here's the problem. He's never told his crime. He's never told what he did wrong. And so the whole book is about this existential crisis he's having. At first, he's like rationalizing it. He's like, you know, I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. There must be some mistake. There must be some like paperwork mix-up. But then the more he thinks about it, the more he's like, oh. He starts thinking about what he's done, what he hasn't done. He starts thinking, oh, maybe maybe it was that. Maybe it was this. Maybe it was that lie I told. Maybe it was that person I snubbed. Maybe it was that corner that I cut. And he starts to drive himself mad because he, is, he, he, he begins to become overwhelmed with a sense of anxiety over this sense of condemnation. And Kafka later on wrote that he... Meant this to be a parable of our modern world. This is what he wrote: the author Kafka. The problem with modern people is that we have gotten rid of the concept of guilt, but we all still feel like sinners. What he means is that, like we've all grown up in context, many of us have, where you're told you're okay, you're you're a great, you're a good person, and um, you know you're wonderful just the way you are. I'm okay. You're okay. But the problem is, is that even though we've been told that all of our lives, we still feel like sinners. We still feel like there's something wrong and that we haven't measured up and that we're in some ways on trial. And Kafka has no real answer for this, but Paul does. Because in Romans 2, he says, even if you're not Jewish, and even if you have never been exposed to the law of God or the Torah at all, Here's the thing, is that all humans, he says, carry within our hearts a sense of the law. And it is constantly accusing us. At some level, he's suggesting, you know what's right and wrong. And you know the kind of parent and the kind of spouse and the kind of worker and the kind of neighbor and the friend and the child. You know the kind of person you want to be. And yet at the same time, you know that you don't even measure up to your own standards, right? And so we carry around in ourselves this sense of, not measuring up. that we're on trial. You know, the, um, the author, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, he once tried uh, to play a prank. He thought it would be a prank on his friends. He sent an anonymous telegram to 12 of his friends with four words on it. Flee, all is revealed. <laughs> what would you do if you got, if you got a letter like that? On the, Flee! All is revealed. Within 24 hours, more than half of them had fled the country. (laughs) And and, and it's funny, but, you know, none of us would struggle to find something worth fleeing about. We know we're on trial, and we know we're guilty. We know we're guilty. For some of you, I think this sense of being on trial is very conscious uh, because um, because you're a perfectionist because you're an Enneagram one, because you're a workaholic, um, because, do you realize how poorly you take criticism? Um, so, So for some of you, you carry this sense of being on trial, like very close to the surface all the time. Others of you, you're more chill. But the voice of the accuser is still always there. And it sounds like the voice of your mother, or the voice of your boss, um, or the voice of your workaholism that drives you, the, the voice of your ambition that pushes you so hard, or the voice of your conscience that is so desperate for that secret to not be revealed. But whatever it is, for all of us, the accusers are always there like a deep subsurface oil leak in all of our souls. And so the question, the, 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 the hard question is, what do you do with your condemnation? What do you do with your, with your guilt? And a therapist might tell you, well, just don't feel guilty. Just get rid of the the idea of guilt. You're a great person. The problem is, like Kafka said, the shame is still there. The sense of something being wrong is still there. So even if you get rid of the concept of guilt, it makes it worse because you don't know why. So that's what a therapist might say. A pastor or a priest might say, well, the problem is you are guilty. And so you better just get good, be good. And the problem with that is, is that we can't. And it just ends up making for a life of religious hypocrisy. And so this is the great problem of the human condition is that we know the people we're supposed to be. We can't be the people that we want to be. And so in the end, we feel condemned. And Paul would say, that's not just a feeling, because you are. Because apart from God, apart from his grace, left to our own devices, we are cut off from God. We can't fix ourselves. We can't save ourselves. This is the terrible problem. We're under condemnation. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, in light of this terrible problem, Paul says something amazing. He says, there is what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can he say that? Well, Paul's habit um, is to state his conclusion first and then to unpack his reasons for it. So let's see what he says. He says, There is no now condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Okay, that's a lot. So just take this in, okay? What he's saying is what the law was powerless to do, God has done. What was the law supposed to do? What was the Torah supposed to do? It was supposed to lead people into life. It was showing them how to live a good life. It was showing them how to live the life that God wanted them to live. And yet, it could not do it, not because the law was flawed, but because we are. Because it was weakened by this sinful flesh. We weren't capable of keeping the law. And so instead of the law leading us into life, the law led us into condemnation because it just shows us over and over again how incapable we are of keeping it. Does that make sense? Does his argument make sense there? Thank you. Um, So what does God do? What does God do in light of this terrible problem? This is amazing. It says God does it. God steps in. That he comes in the person of Jesus to live among us in our own sinful flesh. And not only does Jesus perfectly keep the law, but then it says that he was giving up his life as a sin offering. In Israel, a sin offering was a sacrifice made for sin on behalf of the guilty, and so what it's saying is, is that Jesus, the Messiah, the only truly innocent one, the only one who has ever fully kept the law, has actually stood in. He stood in as a substitute for all of Israel and in turn, all of humanity. And he was crucified on behalf of the guilty. He was crucified as a sin offering. That condemn- I mean, just think about this. Condemnation hung over the entire human race And in the person of Jesus on the cross, God takes into himself and onto himself the full weight of our condemnation. The judge, the creator God, is judged in our place. And so what Paul says is that in this death, God condemns sin. That in Jesus, the whole idea of condemnation was condemned. Condemnation is condemned so that all those who trust in this are now set free from condemnation. Now, we're going to spend all of Lent exploring this astonishing truth, but let me just apply it in this way. When Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, what does that mean? It means that for anyone who has trusted in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you are now united to him. And what Jesus accomplished there all those years ago is now applied today to you, it's like John Wesley said, no, do you know the hymn? No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. That in trusting in Christ, I become in Christ and God takes all that Jesus did and accomplished and now gives it to you. This is astonishing. Now, I don't, I don't think this is news to many of you. I don't see any of you who are like gaping in awe or falling on the floor. That's fine. Um, we're all good Christians. We've heard this stuff, Right? But I don't think you really believe it. I really don't. I don't think I believe it. I mean, I think that if we truly believed that we lived all of our lives with no condemnation, held forever in the love of God, we would be an altogether different kind of people. I think that the way that I have mostly lived my Christian life, and I think the way that many of us do, is like this, right? You know, I became a Christian when I was in middle school. The idea that God was... Forgiving me all of my sins was amazing. No condemnation. Wonderful, wonderful. And then what happens? Then you try to go and live a good Christian life. You go and try to be the person that you're supposed to be. But inevitably what happens? You screw up. And you have a bad day. You kick your dog. You yell at your kids. You flick off a guy in traffic. You... Cut the corner at work. You look at something on your laptop you're not supposed to. Whatever. You know, you have a bad day. And then what do you do? Well, you have, oh my gosh, now I'm condemned again. So you go back to God. Say, God, please forgive me. Oh, no condemnation. How wonderful. But then you live the next day. And the same thing happens all over again, over and over again. That makes for an exhausting life. It's like you're falling in and out of condemnation all the time. Have you ever walked in the rain under an umbrella that somebody else is holding? <laughs> have you ever done that? It's a very weird experience because you're like dry and then like you just drift a little bit and then you're getting wet and then you drift back in and you're dry and then you fall out again and you're wet. And that's, I think, the way that many of us live the Christian life, that we're moving in and out of condemnation all the time. And what Paul is saying is that's not the Christian life. That's a life of religion. That's a life that thinks that you're the basis of God's umbrella of grace over you depends on your own moral performance, moving in and out of it. And what Paul is saying, this idea of, it's not just that condemnation, that no condemnation is a possibility. It's not just that no condemnation is available to you when you ask for forgiveness or at the point of belief. He is saying that there is now no condemnation period. It's gone. The rain has stopped. The trial is over. There's there's none of it there. That the, even the, the, there's nothing that can even bring you back into the place of condemnation ever again. You are completely and eternally free. And you might say, if you're a smarty pants, well, uh, preacher, why do we uh, confess our sin every week? You know, you seem real serious about that. <laughs> I am. But, but, um, and that's important to us as, as Christians, but listen, listen. Many of you are parents. I'm a parent. If your if your kid does something to harm you, as we, all kids do, as I did when I was a kid, if your kid does something to harm you as a parent, or or to break your relationship, do you do you hope and expect that your child will apologize and seek forgiveness? Do you? Yes, of course. But when your child does that, you know that ch- it it's not, they're not trying to legally restore their relationship with you. They're not saying, hey, dad, I know I messed up. um, So would you please now restore my legal rights as a child and reinstitute me into the family unit? No, it's not a legal restoration. It's a relationship repair. They're asking not to be back into the family. They're asking for your relationship to be restored. And that's what's happening when we confess our sin is that we're returning to the one who loves us. We're repairing the relationship, especially from our side, but we are emphatically not coming back into God's grace because we never left it. We were always there. There's no condemnation. Look, I, I, was, I was just reflecting on this this week. There's so many things that being a parent teaches you about God's love. I am an unbelievably flawed father. I thought I was going to be a really, I thought I was a great dad, and then I had kids, and <laughs> I really didn't think I was a great dad before I had children. It's so unbelievably um, arrogant. But I have now, after being a father for 18 years, I realize I am an unbelievably flawed parent. And yet, there's absolutely nothing, there's absolutely nothing that any of my girls could ever do to fall outside of my love. Does that mean there are not things that they have done and will do that will harm me and that will hurt me and that will harm our relationship? Oh, yes, yes. But I would never stop loving them. I would never stop aching for them. I would never reject them, ever. And I'm not like boasting about this because this is just what it means to be a parent, right, parents? It's just true, right? And if we incredibly flawed parents that we are know that nothing will ever separate our children from our hearts, then how could you ever think that would happen with God? How could you ever think that somehow God would give up on you or kick you to the curb or push you out of the circle of his grace? Never. There is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does this all result in? Uh, It results in a completely different kind of life. Look what Paul says in verse four. He says, and so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that... The righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, this is very counterintuitive. You might think that the whole purpose of the law, I mean, the whole purpose of the gospel is to undo the law and make it no longer necessary. But what does Paul say? He says that Christ died and rose for us in order that what? That God could fulfill the law in us. In other words, now, through grace, through the Holy Spirit, through our connection to Jesus, we now have the power to do what previously we were incapable of doing. We now have the power to become the obedient, holy people that God intended us to be all along. I'm not gonna spend any time on this right now because this is really what the whole rest of the chapter is about. But the main thing that I just wanna emphasize to you here at the end is that believing that there is no condemnation dramatically changes your motivation for living an obedient Christian life. Do y'all know this story in John chapter 8? It's one of my favorite stories about Jesus, about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Do, do, do any of you remember that story? Jesus is there and there's the religious leaders and they're trying to trap Jesus trying to, as they prepare to stone this woman who's been caught in adultery. And Jesus, of course, brilliant as he is, tricks them, traps them, and they're all sent away. And then Jesus is standing there with this woman. And Jesus says two things to her. Do you remember what he says? He says... You are not condemned. Now go and sin no more. I do not condemn you. Go and live a new life. And y'all, the order of those two things is everything. You switch the order, you lose Christianity, you lose the gospel, you lose Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like religion says, go and sin no more, and you won't be condemned. Jesus, Jesus says, there is no condemnation. Therefore, go and sin no more. For with Jesus, grace always precedes the law. His kindness always goes before his call to live a new life. His mercy always trumps his command. And so you see how that changes everything. Before, you know, you try to live a good life out of fear, to avoid condemnation. But now everything is different. Now your heart's been changed. You want to live a new life. Because you want to live in a happy and harmonious relationship with the God who loves you. Does this mean that you'll always able, you, you'll be able to live this new life of obedience and holiness every day? No, of course not. Read Romans 7. Read the battle that, that Paul is in. And yet, you can now be totally honest about your failings because there's no condemnation. And you can now see real progress as you grow into the Christian life because you now have the power of God within you, the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ, who helps you more and more to become the one you already are, God's beloved child in Christ. We'll explore that much more deeply in the coming weeks. So let me sum up. What is the problem? The problem is real, the problem of condemnation. But God has done everything necessary to set us free. In Christ, there is no condemnation. The trial is over. And so now we can live a different kind of life, a life with the spirit, the one who loves us, motivated no longer by guilt and fear, but motivated by gratitude and love, living in grateful response to what God's given. So here's just what I wanna invite you into today, this Lent, do you know this wonderful freedom? Do you know this freedom? Do you live in the truth of this freedom? Stop living under condemnation. Start coming today and always into God's grace in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in him. You can wake up every day to the grace of knowing that you are held right now and forever in the love of God and that nothing, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor any powers nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate you From the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That changes everything. Let's pray. We're so thankful, loving God, that you have done for us what the law was incapable of doing and what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you that you came in the person of Jesus to be in our flesh and to live the life we were meant to live but couldn't and to die the death we deserve to die but don't have to because Jesus has borne our condemnation for us. We are now free forever. Help us this week to live as those free people that we are living in the freedom that is ours in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.